Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Program on Governance and Local Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. I'm Ellen Lust, and joining me today to talk about local politics and the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan is Jennifer Brick Murtazashvili. Jen is the founding director of the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh and associate professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs there. She's also an award-winning scholar and an expert with years of experience both working in and on Afghanistan. Her first book, Informal Order in the State in Afghanistan, received the Best Book Award in Social Sciences by the Central Eurasian Studies Society, as well as honors from the International Studies Association. She has just published a second book with Ilya Mertesishvili at Cambridge University Press. That book is entitled Land, the State, and War, Property Institutions and Political Order in Afghanistan, and she served as an advisor for international organizations, including the USAID, the World Bank, the UNDP, and UNICEF. She sat down to talk to me about how the Taliban's takeover has been received in Afghanistan, what has changed since the former Taliban rule, and how much do we really know. We hope you'll enjoy the episode, and don't forget to subscribe, like, and share it if you do. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think your work is incredibly impressive, the work that you've done on Afghanistan and that you're currently doing, and we'll, I'd like to come to some of that in a bit. I'd like to, though, today also take advantage of the fact that you probably know Afghanistan, and especially Afghanistan kind of more broadly and the local politics of Afghanistan better than anybody I know. You've published a book on it. You've done a lot of work on also looking at kind of land and property rights issues. And I think that you're best placed among those who I can can reach out to, to help us understand how the Taliban might be received at the moment, what kinds of local variation there is. We talked about Afghanistan and talk about Kabul almost as if it's one big uniform country and society. And I'd like to dig in a little bit to the differences that we're seeing there. So thank you for joining. It's a great pleasure to be here, Alan. And I just can't tell you what an honor it is. You know, your centers produce so much incredible research and it's just a wonderful honor to be associated with this. Thank you. Thanks. Maybe we can start out just by having you tell us a little bit about what differences we do see and how the Taliban has been received and how it, and sort of its kind of roots of support and how that might be varied across the country. Well, I mean, it is hard to know right now. And I think one of the things that I should just tell your listeners is that it's so hard to access really good information outside of Afghanistan right now. There is a lot of disinformation a lot of things that I'm reading on the internet that I see on social media turn out to be false. A lot of these reports of you know what's happening with women, it's just so hard to verify things. So much of the independent media that was so vibrant inside of Afghanistan over the past two decades has shut down. And so we do have a bit of an information vacuum that different actors are taking advantage of. And so I just want to you know express some caution about that. And what we do know about what's going on is very limited. So you know, in terms of support, I think that the, the way the Taliban garnered support was because of the way the government collapsed. And the weakness of the previous government, I think, is a much more important story than the rise of the Taliban. So the, the previous government was ensconced in corruption, did not allow for a lot of local participation for, for those who are interested in local governance, which I think is, is your audience. 
you know, there was not a lot, a lot of opportunities to participate in governance. So although the country was ostensibly democratic, there were elections for president and the parliament, there were really no opportunities at the local level to participate in politics. So this meant government officials were all appointed by the center, all police chiefs were appointed by the center, all the decisions about the military came from the center. And over time, especially during the past seven or eight years, the, the regime, the Ghani government was very, very isolated and uh, was ruled by a very, the government was really ruled by a very narrow clique that represented a very small set of interests. So when we saw the government collapse, we saw the Afghan national security forces really refuse to fight for that government. And in response to your question about what does this mean for support of the Taliban, I think it's really hard to say. I think we know that people were tired of that government. They were not willing to fight for it. They, it did not have a lot of legitimacy and the Taliban did a very wise thing in terms of garnering support for themselves at the end is they told all of the soldiers, look, give up your arms, give up your weapons. We won't shoot you, you can go home, that's it. There'll be no retaliation. Unlike the past where there was retaliation, they said, we're not gonna retaliate. And they used social media brilliantly. And they had on Twitter, on Facebook, they posted these videos of very famous commanders, very famous political figures who they had captured. Uh, one comes to mind was Ismail Khan, who was the famous you know, warlord who governed Western Herat. He was fighting the Taliban for the months prior to the fall of the government and the Taliban captured him. And this was hugely significant. It signaled a huge weakness of the government. And it really was a major turning point. They captured him. They posted videos that sort of humiliated him. They didn't physically touch him or abuse him. And then they let him go. And then he crossed quietly. He crossed the border into, into Iran. They just let him go. And this sent a very strong signal to people that you can stop fighting and we won't hurt you. And this is why the government collapsed. So this wasn't, you know, we're seeing a lot of discussion here in the United States about technical support to the military and logistics and all of these kinds of technical aspects. This was fundamentally a political question. And so people were not willing to fight for that government. Now, what does that mean for support of the Taliban? I think this is the question we don't really quite understand. Of course, the Taliban does have some support with, within the country. But so much of that support came from people who were alienated by the previous government. And I'm not just speaking about the Ghani government. I'm talking about processes that went back 20 years where Hamid Karzai and his family were involved in you know, certain disputes in southern Afghanistan that alienated certain tribes in the south. And there were debates over who would control the poppy revenues and the drug trade. So these things were arbitrated by the central government and there were winners and losers in all of this. And oftentimes those losers were affiliated with groups that were affiliated with the Taliban historically. So over the past 20 years, we saw real alienation of people by the central government. And to me, that is the real story. The Taliban had just promised people security. They have promised people peace and that they will provide security and peace and order. And they have been able to provide that to many people in the country. And so that has generated some support, but there's a major famine that's taking place, a humanitarian crisis, I think the, the scope of which we have yet to see in this world that is going to have a major impact on their ability to rule in the future. Thank you. I think this is 
a really important point that you're making too about thinking about what the nature of the previous regime was like, right? And thinking about both how they had failed across the country for many people. But I also want to flip it a little bit and think about, you know, you mentioned that it was a clique, right? A ruling clique. Where did they actually have their support? Are there parts of the country where we could say, okay, that those were areas that were favored by the previous regime? Or was it actually just kind of a socioeconomic that there were certain strata of people who were favored by it? I mean, there was sort of a narrow tribal allegiance that President Ghani had, but he didn't really use that alliance as uh, he could have. But in terms of the clique, it was really sort of a narrow group of technocrats that was supported by the international community that was really, really isolated. There's no doubt that he promoted sort of Pashtun nationalism and uh, certain varieties of Pashtun nationalism, especially you know, given uh, his tribal affiliation with the Gilzai, the sub-tribe of the Pashtuns. But I think that's sort of beyond the point is that he did deeply alienate non-Pashtuns minority groups. You know, the Pashtuns are not a minority, a majority, they're a plurality. There is no one group that's a majority in the country. So that makes governing very difficult. But even among the Pashtuns, he didn't have support from all of the groups within that group. But he really relied on his technocratic prowess, the international donors who had his support, and who were providing so much money to the government. And so that the, the international community carried that on for so many years, despite the fact that he was you know, deeply authoritarian and alienating so many people, but continued supporting, continued providing the government with so much money and so much resources that it became very hard for Afghans to understand why this was continuing. What was, what was the point of the intervention? Yeah, and I actually think there's an entire story and discussion to be had about the role of the international community. And in many ways, I think how they failed, right? And that's, of course, one story that we, we're seeing some of, and I think we'll, we'll continue to see a lot of that discussion. But when we're talking about the kind of the tribal elements and the social structure and, and fabric of Afghanistan, can you tell us a little bit about how homogenous are different areas? I mean, is it, should we think of this as more of a, a kind of a checkerboard where there's a lot of heterogeneous communities or are there areas that are essentially Pashto and areas that are under different sets of tribes? So Afghanistan at one time was more homogenous, but has emerged as a checkerboard over the past 150 years. And, and part of that was intentional. It was an intentional strategy of Afghan leaders, actually, to resettle populations in different parts of the country to sort of divide and rule the country. But we can say in general, the Pashtuns are located in the east and the south and have a plurality there. And in the north and the center, you have the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, and the Hazara communities. And these are sort of the largest uh, of the minority groups inside of the country. But even in the north, you have large pockets of Pashtun groups. And then King Abdurrahman Khan re actually resettled many Pashtuns from the south and the center to the north in the late uh, 1900s and gave them land. And, and there's been many of the land disputes and, and contentious politics, actually, that we're seeing now reemerge since the Taliban have come back, date themselves to those land transfers. There are Hazara populations in the south that have land that Pashtuns claim. And all of a sudden, we're now seeing the Taliban sort of stand behind those Pashtuns and seeing forced displacement of many Hazaras who are in the center of the country. And you know, many Hazaras are saying this is akin to genocide. It's an ethnic cleansing that's taken place. 
Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, this kind of ethnic violence take place. And, uh, you know, most of the Hazaras are Shia, really important to recognize. And they, Shia populations have never been favored by the Taliban. So the Taliban are, are Sunni and uh, they have a sort of this Diobandi influence that came from uh, madrasas in Pakistan, where they have their origins. And then, so when we're thinking about how these communities are organizing and how they're maybe even sort of contesting against each other, to what extent should we think of this as being driven by some sense of hierarchy or some sense of governance within these communities? And to what extent is this you know, sort of the natural or the unorganized sense of conflict? So when the Taliban ruled, what was it, 20 years ago, from 96 to 2001, they were largely a Pashtun group that came from the Gilzai sub-tribe. And these are the eastern parts of Afghanistan. And, and they were seen as largely almost you know, uniformly a Pashtun group. They understood one of the things that the Taliban as an organization came to understand is this was a huge vulnerability for them if they wanted to run Afghanistan in the future. So they have spent enormous energy over the past 20 years recruiting non-Pashtuns into their ranks. And so this is actually, we've seen a huge effort among the Taliban, especially to recruit among Tajiks and Uzbeks in, in northern Afghanistan, areas where they didn't control. In fact, this is very fascinating that the Taliban never controlled Badakhshan province in northeastern Afghanistan when they ruled the country uh, 20 years ago. And yet it was one of the first to fall to the Taliban this time around. So the Taliban had a very concerted effort of recruitment. They controlled many districts inside of, of Badakhshan over the past 10 years. There's been enormous fighting in northern Afghanistan, huge displacement of the population, a radicalization, I would say, of the population, an Islamic radicalization that's taken place in, in the north. And it's become real fertile ground for the Taliban recruitment. So the Taliban have diversified their recruitment efforts and now are much more multi-ethnic than they had been at any time in the past. But it's really interesting to note that now that the Taliban are in power, I think many of us anticipated seeing a much more inclusive government, that a government that included many more of the ethnic groups and the ethnic minorities, but we're not really seeing it. So we're seeing a government that's 95% Pashtun. We're not seeing the ethnic minorities represented. And, you know, surprisingly, when the Taliban were running as an insurgency, they even had Hazaras, the, the Shias, as district governors, shadow district governors, which was quite remarkable that they would even move to do this as they were trying to run their insurgency. But now that they're in power, they've pretty much eliminated the role of these ethnic minorities in government. So there's been a lot of pressure on the Taliban to diversify, to be a more inclusive government. And a lot of Afghans are now debating, what does this mean to be more inclusive? Is ethnic representation, does this just mean, you know, this is, is this how we're looking at things in terms of which races and which ethnicities are represented? Or are we actually looking for differences of opinion, different approaches? And I think that's really what uh, the international community means, isn't just ethnic inclusivity, but it means the representation of different interests. What about women? Though they, they're not represented at all in this government, and uh, it's not clear that they will be. And another thing that you're sort of bringing out there, right? I mean, this question about how we think about representation, which also was something that we saw, for example, after the fall of Saddam Hussein for Iraq, right? I mean, that was another question where is this about understanding it in terms of sectarianism and different groups or what does it actually entail? But here we have this really interesting question of kind of the Taliban version one and the Taliban version two. 
And there's some ways in which you're suggesting that there's a change of approach and at least as insurgents and the diversification of the support base, et cetera. But then you're also suggesting that maybe there's a little less change. I realize it's very early in the kind of in the Taliban rule, but is there a way to think about how much the Taliban has, has changed? Also, of course, how much Afghanistan has changed, right? We can't, all societies change a lot in 20 years. Or how much should we be thinking about this as the return of something almost in its, in its previous form? That's a really good question. And I think it's one that I think we all wish we knew we had the answer to. And there are people who will tell you emphatically, no, the Taliban haven't changed. And I think there are people who are more hopeful who will tell you, no, we have to hope that they will change because we can't have war anymore. And there's a, there's a growing number of people who really believe that, you know, let's deal with the Taliban. Let's hope let's, there's windows to put pressure on them, to engage with them, to hope that they will change. Some of the things that we can say they have changed. First, I would say that they have a much better understanding of societal grievances. They, they show this in their social media, right? And this is one of the things that I'm looking at. They have really a, a sophisticated understanding about what is upsetting people and especially about what upset people about the previous government, they're willing to communicate. They have um, that understanding. That really surprised me, even like in urban areas, they were talking about corruption issues that really affected people in urban areas with great specificity. Another issue where I think we've seen a change, remember, they're not, requ they're not requiring women to wear burqas or chaduris as the Afghans call them. We haven't seen a return to that. They are allowing girls to go to school. Now they're not allowing girls to go to school above the sort of middle school level for much of the country, but now we're beginning to see sort of local protests. I just saw a report in Herat province in Western Afghanistan that girls are now allowed to go back to high school. There's a lot of regional variation in terms of where people are being allowed to go back to school, but these are sort of largely unconfirmed reports. I haven't seen all of this confirmed hundred percent. So I want to be very careful because I saw lots of reports about all universities being shut to women. And New York Times was reporting that, yet that was highly contested inside the country. So we're not seeing the requirement of beards. Recall that that was something that the Taliban imposed. We're not seeing them ban music. We're not seeing them do some of the very, very heavy-handed things that they did in the past. So the ideology does seem unchanged, but yet the way that they are imposing it is quite different. So I do think, especially in urban areas, they do realize that they're dealing with a population that has changed a lot. And Afghanistan has changed a lot. Kabul has changed a lot. The cities have changed a lot. I think if they tried to impose some of this, they know that they'd fear, they'd, they'd face enormous backlash. You know, one of the things I'm wondering is whether they, they are just going to do this gradually. There'll be social pressure to, to do this. They're not making any proclamations about dress codes right now, but you can see things changing because of expectations that people expect, okay, now that the Taliban is in power, I should behave this way. They can do this sort of tacitly. So I think those are some important changes that we've seen. Now, does that mean that they're going to govern any differently, that they're going to be more representative, that they're going to be more accommodating? I don't believe that's the case. They have won. They defeated a superpower. They have no need to really share power with anybody. I mean, this is a great moment for them. If you think about uh, from their perspective, this was a, an insurgency that they fought for 20 years. They've defeated the United States. The United States left. And not only did the United States leave, but look at the way the United States left. So what leverage does the United States or any of these Western powers have over telling the Taliban how they're going to govern? Look at the way the president left. Look at the way President Ghani left. I mean, it was really 
quite something. Even the Taliban weren't ready to march into Kabul. They were waiting for, for cues from the United States or hoping, I mean, and nobody was prepared for this. So I don't think they're in any position really to negotiate. Now, the United States certainly has leverage, but it's not incredibly strong leverage. Money and resources that the international community has over the Taliban regime certainly is something that they're holding over the heads of the Afghans. But the longer there's a, there's a famine breaking out in the country right now, there's terrible hunger uh, that's taken shape. So recall that 70% of the government's budget came from the United States or from international donors. And that was just the government budget. We can't, we think about the entire economy and how much of that came from the international donor community. There was such dependence. So when that money shut off, so many resources that fed that country stopped. And not only that, the United States controlled the, the federal, their, their equivalent of the reserve, the Federal Reserve Bank, the central bank's reserves and, and the currency. So all currency trade was controlled by the United States. And so the United States cut off access to those resources. And so what that did is it had a devastating effect on the currency, the value of the currency plummeted, and then it, it really prevented the central government from accessing any of those funds for good reason, right? There were reports that Ashraf Ghani was leaving the country with $169 million in cash. I don't know, that's not been confirmed, but you know, these are the reports and there's good reasons why the United States and others would want to sort of freeze these assets. It's not clear if there's a government but the longer these assets are frozen, the easy the country will plummet into famine and hunger. And we're seeing that right now. It, it's, it's horrific watching these pictures, even talking to people I know who are very prosperous and well-connected in Kabul are having a hard time paying their staff members, people I know with different organizations. It, it is a very, very serious situation. So the United States, I think, thinks it has leverage over the Taliban by controlling these resources. But the longer this goes on, the pictures become worse. It really, really becomes a, a moral imperative not to let people starve and to put politics aside. So I don't think the United States actually has much upper hand over the Taliban right now. I think the Taliban can play this quite easily by saying, look, the United States wants to hurt us, wants to hurt you, just like they have for the past 20 years. This isn't our fault. They can easily say that. So, you know, although it's, it's hard and it will certainly not make people happy with the Taliban and will certainly breed resentment among people that they have to go through this, they can e people can easily understand why this is not the Taliban's doing. Those are great points. I'm also thinking about the fact, you know, sort of going back a few minutes, you, you were noting the kind of the regional differences. So clearly outside actors don't have a lot of leverage at the moment. But are there areas or inside actors who do, who might not necessarily agree with everything sort of socially that the Taliban wants to do, and yet are important economic actors or areas where we have important economic centers, and that we can expect that there's some kind of local pushback against at least the most extreme forms that they might want to take? It's really hard to see right now. I think this is, if you were asking me to be, what was the most surprising element of what's happened over the past two months? It would be the totalizing control the Taliban has and the complete collapse of all resistance against them. And this is, looking back, it's easy to understand why this was. So over the past seven or eight years, the government of Ashraf Ghani invested a lot of resources, not in fighting the Taliban, but in fighting the so-called warlords of northern Afghanistan. These are the ethnic minorities, the, the Uzbeks, uh, you know, who are famously represented by uh, Abdul Rashid Dostum, 
the Tajik warlords, who were all these groups who were affiliated with the Northern Alliance. Ghani saw these warlords as a threat to stability in the country. Many people in the North saw his actions to isolate these warlords as ethnic discrimination. So warlords don't just exist in the North, they exist across the country, but we don't call Pashtuns warlords very often. Right? That's a term that is actually reserved for the ethnic minorities, which is really interesting and is, is pointed out by these minority groups is a sort of pejorative. So they have local protection leaders who protect their interests. They're called warlords, but they're not called this in other parts of the country. So to say that they don't have, they, they have enormous legitimacy, but Ashraf Ghani as president, I think was quite successful, not as a technocrat, as many people thought he would be, but as someone who actually consolidated power and eliminated rivals. He was actually very quite good at this um, and really used the resources of the state to undermine these actors, many of whom were governors of his. So they were appointed to government officials. Karzai actually dealt very well with all of these actors because Karzai understood that to achieve a balance in, in creating this new state, he had to create a balance between all of these different people. Now, he didn't do this perfectly. There were some Pashtun groups who were like affiliated with the Taliban, who he did not include as much as he could. He had his relatives in southern Afghanistan who alienated many of those groups, who were some of the first to join the Taliban. But on the whole, Karzai did a much better job of creating a sense of national unity. I think we'll go back and, and look back at those Karzai days and really, you know, in the West, we've really vilified Karzai. President Obama vilified Karzai to, to an extreme. And I think we'll look back and understand that he was actually someone who was trying, albeit imperfectly, to build a state, whereas his successor, Ashraf Ghani, really ruled from a much more narrow base, was very paranoid about threats to his power. And rather than seeing his job is sort of balancing all of these interests, he saw his job as controlling. So what did that mean? It meant that he spent his rule undermining these groups who actually could have saved him in the end. Watching the collapse of the country over the summer, it was quite amazing that the Taliban went after northern areas first. We didn't see Kandahar fall, we didn't see Jalalabad fall in the south and the east and the Pashtun heartland. We saw the major Taliban offenses happen in the north in the areas that they had not traditionally ruled. And this was very important uh, for several reasons. First, it cut off the traditional basis of external support that like the Northern Alliance commanders relied on in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, this cross-border weapons trade that had been sort of a pillar of uh, Northern Alliance rule, especially you know, during the first Taliban reign. So that was no longer available, the cross-border support. But secondly, it showed, I think, to the rest of the country that if things are this bad in the North and the Taliban can make the North fall, what about the rest of the country? So it really, that was a brilliant military strategy on their part to take the North first. But what it did is that Ghani, by weakening those warlords, weakened the very people who probably felt strongest about the survival of the Republic. Those were the people who toppled the Taliban in the very beginning. And by weakening them, he really weakened the state. And I, and I think there's going to be a lot of lessons for scholars of rebel governance and non-state actors about what this means, because I just don't think we get these categories right. There's such a blurred lines here between state and non-state warlords and technocrats and all of these different terms that we use. But in this kind of very confusing situation, these individuals had a great deal of legitimacy in the North. They were seen as the only sort of source of resistance. 
Now we did see this pocket of resistance emerge in the Panjshir Valley in the early days after the fall of the Kabul government with the National Resistance Force led by Ahmed Massoud, who is the son of the great military commander Ahmed Shah Massoud. Uh, and we recall Ahmed Shah Massoud's father uh, was killed two days before 9-11 in a terrorist attack. And Ahmed Shah Massoud was a you know, revered figure by many parts, not all, but many parts of the Afghan population, especially the Tajik ethnic minority who saw him as a leader, a very charismatic leader, had global support, was seen as sort of a, he espoused sort of what he called an enlightened form of Islam. And that was stood in contrast to the forms of Islam that he accused the Taliban of trying to impose. His son, uh, Ahmed Massoud, was studied at Sandhurst in the UK and came back to Afghanistan over the past four or five years, has been very active in Afghan politics, and he set up a base of resistance against the Taliban and Panjshir. The Taliban never controlled Panjshir Valley. This is this you know, Tajik source of resistance. It's about an hour north of Kabul. But the Taliban quickly went in after they controlled the government and defeated Massoud and Panjshir. And so that was really when we saw the defeat of Ahmed Massoud and Panjshir, it was really the last time we saw any kind of organized resistance inside of Afghanistan. I think Massoud is now in Tajikistan with several of his allies who were once with the government. But we're not seeing any strong organized resistance inside of the country. We're seeing localized protests. We are seeing some reports of some uh, national resistance fronts. Uh, fighters in, in different parts of the North, but nothing to call really an organized resistance. So this creates a lot of, creates a vacuum. And it creates a vacuum for those people who oppose the government. So if you are from an ethnic minority and you oppose the Taliban, or if you just don't like the Taliban's ideology, where do you go? And this is a great question right now. And it's actually a frightening one because Support for these you know, warlords really did dry up, I think, when they fled the country. And many of them you know, crossed by land to Uzbekistan or Tajikistan in the days you know, during the collapse of the government. I think they lost a lot of their legitimacy. They were seen as defeated. The Taliban won. They were part of the older generation. And even if they had local support, they, the, their defeat was visceral. And I think people learned that they could no longer rely on them. And they had been weakened intentionally by the previous government. If you are opposed to the Taliban, where do you go? Well, what is the only source of opposition to the Taliban right now? And it's coming from ISIS. And so the ISIS is the main source of opposition. It's seen as a strong source of opposition. And what we're beginning to see is a, is a dynamic that I think is similar to what we saw in Iraq. Although I don't know enough about the Iraqi you know, case in, in that much detail, but many colleagues have expressed this is that it's former elements of the, the national security forces, the army, the national police. They are the ones who are joining ISIS. We're seeing public proclamations of these former uh, security force figures joining ISIS. We're also seeing um, in northern parts of Afghanistan, those groups that were once part of the Northern Alliance. Uh, I mentioned the radicalization that's taken place in the North. So we're also seeing people in the North joining different factions within ISIS. And they've been operating in the North for some time now as well. Um, so I can tell there's foreign factions involved and, and foreign fighters there as well from neighboring countries uh, who also have a presence. So it's a very uh, delicate situation. And I, I, I do worry about the Taliban. The Taliban all of a sudden look like a moderate force 
in all of this. And if the Taliban want to retain power, I'm talking to many people still in Afghanistan, even more important people in politics who stayed behind. They're arguing off the record that if the Taliban don't moderate in terms of allowing an opposition, a healthy opposition to emerge against them, they're going to be stuck with ISIS. And is that something they really want? And, and I, I think that's a, it's a very acute assessment and a, an accurate one that unless there is space for an organized opposition within the country, the Taliban are really going to be left with a vicious sort of opposition. It's also fascinating because what you're pointing to is the interest in controlling the state, the extent to which that's, that's important. And you've argued elsewhere that Afghanistan is fundamentally centralized. And you started out by talking about how little there was in terms of formal state participatory levels at the local government level, right? Not elections at the local level and, and that kind of thing. There's another way of thinking about it. You're also talking about the weakness of the state. And so I'd like to hear a little bit more, like if you're, if you're an Afghan outside of Kabul, especially, right? Or in the rural areas, et cetera, then how much is this touching you? How much is this a, a struggle and a fight that's going to affect your lives? And how much has, is the sort of the governance at the local level, in a sense, be taking place in, in other venues? So I think it really depends where you are. You know, I don't want to exaggerate it. And I know, you know, many of my Afghan friends have various opinions on this. But I think we, we have to recognize that there is peace in the country right now, that the aerial bombardments have stopped, the drone strikes have stopped. I mean, there are some suicide bombings here and there, but the kind of insecurity that people faced in Kabul constantly, faced in rural areas constantly, seems to have subsided. And that peace for many is priceless, but it does feel like a very small window, right? Given all the other dynamics that we've discussed. But if you are in a rural area, what does it mean for you? I mean, I think this is sort of the heartbreak of the past 20 years is it doesn't mean all that much is that so much of this politics took place in Kabul, so much of the jockeying for power took place in Kabul. What you saw in, in rural areas was really neglect. You saw a lot of NGO projects at certain points. You saw military campaigns, all of this has stopped. The Taliban are no longer fighting. So you're seeing peace, but it's a very unstable and very tense peace. So, because there's no time horizons, people don't know how long to expect this to last. And I think there's real uncertainty. So I think the Taliban are very happy. They've, they've been handed the keys to one of the most centralized states in the world. And I just heard a senior US government official, I was asking about this issue of subnational governance and Taliban's attitudes towards this. And I, I spoke to an American official who was participating in the negotiations with the Taliban over the past several years. And I asked whether the issue of subnational governance ever came up during those negotiations. And this individual told me that uh, it didn't really come up, but when it did, the Taliban were very happy to have the, the centralized form of governance that exists in the country. So Afghanistan, you know, prior to all of this, had one of the most centralized states in the world. And so the Taliban were in no rush, are in no rush to give anybody greater discretion. They very much like the centralized control, believe in a strong fist from the center to rule the countryside. So I don't think that we're going to see much change in that regard. I think we're going to see a lot of continuity because the system of governance at the subnational level was inherently authoritarian. Everyone was appointed from Kabul. So who's going to be appointed now? You know, rather than a, a corrupt uh, official from Kabul who's related to someone through someone who's involved in the drug trade, you'll see a corrupt Taliban official who's related to someone who's related to someone involved in 
in the drug trade. So the, it just, the, the sides will change, the ideology will change. So rather than talking about democracy and women's rights, they're gonna talk about Islam. But of course this has effect on women, has effect on children, also has effect on men. But I think in terms of what it means for governance, I don't think we're gonna see huge changes. What we're gonna see is huge changes as a result of the Rentier state collapsing. The Taliban are, are going to look to communities as sources of revenue. They're gonna put pressure on people to raise money for the state. I think this is going to happen. You know, we see this you know, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Robert Bates wrote about this famously, right? Uh, when, when the state collapsed and the, the rents dried up, officials turned on citizens. And you're beginning to see reports of this where the Taliban are forcing villages to feed them. I mean, in sort of a very visceral sense. And I think this will continue as rev sources of revenues dry up. We'll see narcotics trade increase, uh, reliance on opium certainly increase, but a lot of the countries in, in the region are hopeful that a regional trade can commence. Some countries are very hopeful, Central Asian states, some of them, Uzbekistan in particular is, is really looking, has seen this as an opportunity for peace and trade and commerce. And now that there's actually peace in the country, opportunities for infrastructure, construction of railroads, things that many of these little landlocked countries have long dreamed of, they depend on one another so very much. And so when you have peace in Afghanistan, so much is possible in terms of commerce and trade. But peace is a big question mark right now. It's a really big question mark. And how you know, the Taliban yesterday announced um, the appointment of 44 governors and government officials. I don't have a complete list, but my understanding, it's almost exclusively a Pashtun group. They've reorganized the military, renamed some of the brigades. But we're not looking at any substantial changes in the way the state is organized. In fact, there's, we're going to see a lot of continuity, some changes in ideology but I don't expect any significant changes in terms of actually how the country's governed. So I can see why the, the neighboring countries would be excited about the possibilities of trade and stability, right? Are they equally concerned about the sort of launching pad and the, the ability and space for ISIS to expand and what it means for them for stability? So this is a really interesting question and one that I think may surprise some of your audience members because. I think a lot of the neighbors looked at the past 20 years as inherently unstable. And the longer the United States was in Afghanistan, the more unstable parts of the country became. You know, I, I worked a lot in the, in the northern, Afghanistan's northern neighbors in, in, in Central Asia. And Uzbekistan saw the chaos in the north over the past seven or eight years. I don't think we were paying attention. You know, in north, we saw massive amounts of people displaced. Millions of people displaced, a third of the population, according to IO, IOM estimates, a third of the country was internally displaced in the North beginning in 2013. Tens of thousands died. And, and this is where you began to see, we can trace a lot of this to military campaigns in Pakistan that pushed sort of the Taliban out of the Northwest frontier provinces into Northern Afghanistan, pushed the Taliban out of Pakistan and ISIS into Northern Afghanistan, places where they had not been. But a lot of the countries are looking at this chaos in Afghanistan. Recall that the government only controlled 30% of the country's territory uncontested before the government collapsed. So if you're a neighboring country, and I know like, you know, here in the United States, people are paying attention to Afghanistan for the first time in a very long time, looking at these horrific pictures and saying, ah, the U.S. has collapsed. What about the women? What about the, you know, the, the plight of Kabul? This is so terrible. But it's been terrible for a long time. And so I think a lot of countries were very worried about ISIS growing under the United States, 
because it was so unstable. And there's a hope that the Taliban can be like a ruthless dictator and impose order. And I think a lot of the neighboring countries are hoping that the Taliban, even the Iranians, right, are hoping that the Taliban can behave like this. And I think neighboring countries will support the Taliban to do this, to sort of rule with an iron fist and to impose a kind of homogenous, homogenizing order. And they can do a better job of getting rid of ISIS than the United States. So this is a big question. It's a big bet. And I think it's one that's really hard for us to answer right now. Thank you. That's absolutely incredible. I always learn so much from you. Are there things that I haven't asked you about that you feel are important for everybody to know? I, I just think that there's so much that we don't know. There's so much that I don't know. I, I just want people to understand that here in the United States, and I know, you know, watching you know, some of my European friends, we, we tend to make this about us. I think it means that we were just really bad at what we did in Afghanistan. I think we can't take away much more than that. I think we have to ask a lot of questions about why this happened. I think there has to be a lot of accountability. A lot of money was spent. A lot of hearts were broken. That's sort of inevitable in foreign policy. But the way that we fought this war, the way that we fought this, the, the, the development projects that we created, the way that we understood governance, the way that we understood state building, the way that we understood state control, I hope that for all of us who focus on Charles Tilley, and all of these theories of state formation, I think that there's a lot we don't know. There are models of, of the state that this intervention in Afghanistan challenges that many of us assumed 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago was this very special moment in time. It was 10 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think to many of us, liberalism seemed inevitable. This idea of sort of a new liberal world order and that countries would sort of inevitably fall if they had this freedom towards democracy, towards market capitalism, towards whatever. There was sort of this teleology to it. And it's easy to say now, right, knowing what we know now, that there's no such thing as a transition towards democracy, right? That there's no transitions to anything. But we really believe that. I did, certainly, 20 years ago, um, that there was sort of this teleology to that. And I think it's hard to let go of that. I think it's hard to let go of our views about democracy and separating our views from our analysis and the values that we may hold as individuals to understanding really the way the world works. It's really hard to peel your way, peel yourself away from your own values and not turn into abyss of moral relativism. But to understand that there are so many ways, there's so many directions, it's not authoritarianism or democracy, it's not state or chaos. There's so many different categories, I think, that we're not even considering on sort of this three-dimensional, four-dimensional, five-dimensional chessboard that we just really need to sort of rethink so much of this, rethink our own models, rethink what's possible. But I hope those people who are involved in crafting local development, involved in development projects, really have a good look in the mirror to understand that hearts and minds are not won through infrastructure projects or hand pumps. Hearts and minds are not won by giving people things. The United States tried really hard. We don't have very strong evidence from any of this, from all of the fancy randomized controlled trials that have been done, all you know, in Afghanistan and elsewhere, is that dignity and people's dignity and protecting that dignity is a really hard thing for states to do. And it's something that really means something to people. And that meaning is something that international donors can't really build. That's hard. 
And uh, I don't have any easy answers to that, but I think that's something we need to think about is this deep alienation. We're seeing it around the world, not just in Afghanistan, but a deep alienation and loss of trust of institutions. And I think that we're gonna continue to see these kinds of travails over the years to come. Unfortunately, I think you're right. I also think that it depends or requires a lot more understanding and especially a lot more understanding from on the ground, as they would say. One of the things that you've also done in addition to your fantastic work and research on your own is work a lot with, with other scholars and with helping to both get people out of Afghanistan at, at the time of the collapse in the fall. And also currently I understand that you're building a center that will help Afghan scholars to be able to be relocated and continue their work. Can you tell us a little bit about that? To end on a bit of a happier note, I think, than, than where we are. Absolutely. So thanks for that. Um, yeah, we're, we've created a program for Afghan scholars at the University of Pittsburgh, where I work. And we're in the midst of raising funds for this project right now. And we've, we've raised funds to bring about five scholars to Pittsburgh for the next two years. And we hope to expand the, the, the number that can come. Our idea behind this is very simple. Is over the past 20 years, I think one of the most impactful things that we've seen in Afghanistan is education. Whether this came from donors or not, there was so much, so much private initiative involved in education. I think we have a hard time appreciating people's hunger for this. Uh, we tend to look at Afghanistan through these black and white terms. There were more private universities in Kabul than public universities. And many villages where I traveled, people didn't have access to schools, or maybe there was a government school, but there were ghost workers, there was corruption. People would pay a teacher to teach their girls. People would pay a teacher to teach their boys. So we talk about resilience, Afghans have it in spades, unfortunately. I don't think it's anything that they'd celebrate, but they have this capacity to do this themselves. And so this hunger for education is something that will not die, is not dying. And over the past two decades, it's been a real privilege to watch the intellectual community in Afghanistan grow and thrive and just really leapfrog so many of its neighbors. Just this incredible intellectual community emerged in Kabul and in other regional cities. And so one of the things I'm really driven to do is to preserve this community and to preserve the debates, the discussion, the disagreements that they had, the ideas and the enormous creativity that they brought to the table. And so uh, we, we hope to do that physically by bringing them to Pittsburgh. So we just had our first scholar join us about 10 days ago, Dr. Omar Sadr, who is one of the country's most eminent political scientists and sort of the leader of this younger generation that's that really represents the best of what the international community, but also Afghans themselves have accomplished over these past 20 years. And this is really very much an Afghan accomplishment. He was a professor, is a professor at the American University of Kabul in the political science department, writes a lot on pluralism and cultural diversity. And he's been a huge magnet in attracting many others who want to join. So we have five others who are coming. Hopefully some are still stuck in Afghanistan. As soon as we can get them out, they'll be joining us in Pittsburgh. There'll be opportunities to engage virtually, on virtual platforms, to write. Uh, so we're really hoping that this will become sort of a premier site for policy debate on Afghan issues led by Afghan scholars and allowing these Afghan voices to continue. So I'm excited for them all to get here so they can take the lead on this initiative and really direct where it's going to go. But it just feels like a small thing that we can do. It's been such a huge honor to learn from these people over the past two decades in so many different capacities. So I just hope that uh, this is a temporary stop and they could come back home, but really preserving these communities. I'm sure these people will find 
they'll be successful no matter where they go. But getting jobs in academia and research is hard, especially when you're displaced. So it's, it's something that we're really committed to. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much. Thanks for taking time. And I know how busy you are. Thank you for all the work you do in terms of both making us think about questions of, of theory and where we, where we fail of foreign policy, of understanding Afghanistan much better, and also for the, the real work you do in terms of promoting scholarly communities more generally. So thank you. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Ellen. Such a pleasure. Thank you.